Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's conversation is an interview with Gunnar Branson, the CEO of AFIRE, the Association of Foreign Investors in Real Estate, and the prior CEO of NAREM, the National Association of Real Estate Investment Managers. I've known Gunnar now for about the last dozen years, and he's one of my favorite people in the business. Anyone who knows Gunnar will share my thinking that Gunnar is one of the most articulate and thoughtful framers of the issues, opportunities, and challenges facing the real estate business, and through both of his association roles, has done an amazing job of generating discussions among peers on these topics. In the podcast, we walk across the main issues facing the business, including his thoughts as head of AFIRE on what's driving foreign capital into U.S. real estate right now as we're moving forward from the COVID crisis. Another thing, Gunnar is the host of the AFIRE podcast, which is a great series of conversations. I love his conversations and the library he is building, and unlike leading voices, they come in 20-minute bite-sized chunks. Highly recommended. And I'll tell you that Gunner has just a fantastic radio voice. Gunner's actually our fourth association executive on Leading Voices. We've had Doug Bibby, who leads the National Multifamily Housing Council, David Schles, who leads the American Seniors Housing Association, and Ed Walters, who leads the Urban Land Institute. Listeners might wonder why I keep returning to association leaders in these discussions. It's clear for me that people like Doug and David are among the best people to provide an overview for our listeners on specific sectors, in their cases, multifamily and seniors housing, or from conversations with an Ed Walter or a Gunner, what's moving the needle in the industry across sectors. I'm sure you'll find that perspective in today's conversation with Gunner. Speaking of associations, I went to a real estate conference last week Yes, you heard it correctly, an in-person, live-in-the-flesh industry event. I attended the National Multifamily Housing Council meeting in San Diego last week, and next week I'm going to the UC Berkeley Fisher Center biannual event at Pebble Beach. In terms of the vibes at NMHC, I think that most people went planning to wear masks through the event and only get as close to each other as a fist bump. Instead, virtually everyone had a vaccination badge, And most of the people I saw, long-term friends virtually one and all, were shaking hands, hugging, and just happy to be together again. One of the pleasures of being in this industry in general, and from the vantage point of being a recruiter representing Terra Search Partners, is the warmth and depth of relationships and connectivity in the business. Connectivity and relationships is, I believe, as compared to other industries, a hallmark of real estate in general, and certainly one of the high points of my work over the years at TerraSearch. I hope that you're finding connectivity and meaning through these conversations on Leading Voices. If you are, to keep the connections going, please share this and favorite episodes with friends. Please rate us on iTunes or however you listen to your podcasts. And if you have any feedback or ideas, please feel free to share with me at my day job at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. I hope that you enjoy the conversation with Gunnar. Gunnar Branson, welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. I am thrilled to have you on the show. You are a fellow podcaster and truly one of my favorite friends to get together with in the business. We're not in person today, but we're here on Zoom and we're talking and everyone's going to get to hear it. 
Well, thank you, Matt. Uh, certainly the feeling is reciprocal. I, I, I feel the same. I've, I've looked forward to this for a while. <laughs> cool. So let me just do a brief intro and then I'll let you tell the real story. But we know each other because we worked together on various projects when you were the CEO of NAREM, the National Association of Real Estate Managers, which you'll have to describe. And now you're the CEO of AFIRE, the Association of Foreign Investors in Real Estate, which you also have to describe. And you're a fellow podcast host with the AFIRE podcast host. I've listened. You have good bite-sized chunk episodes. I have these long conversations with people. More of um, a complete meal, less of a snack, you know. And together, we will tell have an entire library that people can learn everything they need to know about real estate, which is my goal. So absolutely. So before I introduce the themes of the conversation, Gunnar, just introduce yourself to our group here and make sure I've kind of given you some justice in how I gave the headlines on you. More justice than I deserve. So hello, everyone. I'm Gunnar Branson, and I do run AFIRE, as Matt mentioned, uh, the Association of Foreign Investors in Real Estate. And talk about just briefly, because we'll go into this later, we're talking about your career a little bit, but what was NAREM? What is NAREM? What does it do? What was that platform for you? And then what is AFIRE? And what is that platform for you? And what's the difference in kind of the audiences and the influence that you bring to the table here? Certainly. Well, one of my favorite questions that people ask me is, what is an AREM or what is an AFIRE? This alphabet soup that we have in associations can be confusing. But NAREM is really focused mostly on North America, on investment managers. So think the folks that are putting funds together from mm -hmm. the various institutional capital sources, the pension plans, et cetera, and they are putting it to work uh, with their portfolios. And they range in size from you know, large investment managers like you know, Blackstone down to the, the, the very small, maybe they have a, a billion in assets under management, uh, very, very focused on a particular city or a particular kind of asset class. Very intimate group, about 100 firms, really wonderful discussions and really thoughtful about you know, where is real estate going. AFIRE has a lot of the same people from that NAREM universe of investment managers in the US, but it mm -hmm. also has international capital sources so from 24 different countries that are focused in on the US. And they tend to invest alongside investment managers in the US. And this was started about 30 years or so ago by Jim Fetgetter with a group of uh, Japanese and uh, Dutch investors mm -hmm. uh, to really help figure out how best to invest. The conversation is very much the same. It's very much the institutional point of view on commercial real estate investing. It's very much on those top markets that can sustain institutional real estate and large investments. What makes it more complicated, obviously, is that you're coming from another country and you're trying to figure out how best to place your pension money or your sovereign money here in the U.S. And, and again, are, very similar conversations. Mm -hmm. And are those the AFIRE members, the foreign members, are they largely, do they also invest into the companies that were part of NAREM? So same conversation, but the other side of the table? Yes. Yes. So a, a lot of them are literally putting their money to work in funds with the investment managers. Mm -hmm. Or they're doing joint ventures or doing separate accounts or lots of other different ways. And that's been the case, not just globally, but that's happening domestically as well, is there's a lot of different forms that institutional capital are using in order to invest in real estate. So instead of simply just buying a building, which used to be what most uh, investors did or pensions would do, 
they tend to work now with partners, operators, with investment managers, with others that are going to be more efficient and more successful. Mm -hmm. So the typical audience for leading voices and the typical guests for leading voices are on the investment side, not the capital, pure capital side. Mm -hmm. So we will all be very curious what foreign capital is thinking about in terms of their interest in investing in US real estate right now. So that might be our first topic, and you get to speak for your investor group about what's hot, what's not hot, what's interesting, what are they scared of, how do they look at COVID and post-COVID, and take that and start there any way you want. But what is the view of your members, that part of your member group? Well, what's interesting to me right now, so we've been through a traumatic experience of the last year. There's still a lot of problems to work through, not all of them directly COVID related. There's a lot to work through. However, when we surveyed in February, our investor base, we had the largest group respond in in years, it was just really a lot of people participating. Someone joked to me, it's because they're all stuck at home and they have nothing else to do, mm -hmm. uh, which is actually not true, but there is this sense of wanting to understand what's on everyone else's minds. Incredibly positive, incredibly optimistic, enthusiastic would be uh, the, the way to describe the kinds of responses that we're getting. That the intended investment levels for this year are fantastic. We are seeing more net buyers than we are net sellers, which is what we were seeing in 2019 before COVID even showed up. Mm -hmm. You're seeing these investors trying to find the right place to go within mm -hmm. the United States. Now, in the past, it was a lot easier. You go to New York and you buy yourself a nice shiny building in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. That's a core asset that you know, it, it's a large asset that's going to soak up quite a lot of, of funds and you're able to put it to work right away with a reliable cash flow. And core and shiny um, means office. Means office. office. Absolutely. Of office. Mm -hmm. With the occasional you know, condo building, I guess, thrown in there, depending on what kind of investor you are, but it's office. Mm -hmm. So the top cities for investing in the 30 years of us asking that question have always been you know who they are. New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago, Boston, Washington, DC. That's Those are the folks that end up in the top five all the time. Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, core gateway markets, those large, diverse markets that have you know the kind of business that you see in a New York. Top of the list this year, Austin, Texas, mm -hmm. followed by Boston, which makes some sense, especially given what's happening with their tech corridor, uh, followed by Dallas, followed by Atlanta, and then New York shows up at number five. Mm -hmm. There is definitely a shift. And they're all kind of up there for the same reason, right? So, you know, it's it's that young demographic that's growing fast. It's tech, 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 and more tech. It's these are the kind of exciting markets where you're seeing growth already. Mm -hmm. And with COVID, you saw a little of an acceleration of that growth as well. So it becomes very interesting. Now, not everyone who said that Austin's at the top of their list is going to invest there. I mean, it, it, how many buildings can you invest in, in Austin? You know, there, there's going to be a trying. lot of construction there, but th there, there are limitations. I think Seattle is going to see a lot of activity, as is Atlanta in this. And Dallas is also seen as a, as a viable option. But the other part of this that switched as well, a few years ago, not, not that long ago, two or three years ago, you started to see the growth of multifamily versus office and the same thing with industrial. And this year, they're both on top. Yeah. Office falls a couple of degrees below, one degree below hotels. So 
the old days where we'd say, okay, I'm, I'm a core investor. I only buy, you know, mostly buy office buildings in these core markets. The amount of investors two years ago that said they were predominantly core was 61%. Now it's 50%. Mm. It's diminishing. And a lot of people are talking about chasing of yield. And you know, I don't know if that's an accurate way to describe it. It's it, they are looking for yield. It is tougher to find in high-priced markets. Mm -hmm. They're looking at secondaries. They are looking at where is the population growth. They're looking at what kind of population growth, and that's what they're looking for. They're you know they're making good decisions. They're thinking about mm -hmm. it from the standpoint of what's happening with the tenancy, and it means that there's a, I believe a much more nuanced understanding of the United States market. That has grown over time with a lot of these investors that have been here a very long time. And uh, they really are starting to see, oh, it's not just about a couple of markets. So let's um, drill down on a couple parts of that. So we'll drill down first on New York, because I'm guessing that after each financial crisis, New York takes a while to recover and it's viewed the same way. So it's probably bounced from towards the top to the middle each time this happens. Although maybe this time those other cities move up and stay up for a while or move up and stay up forever? Because I think they're now kind of permanent alternatives. And is there any sense from these kind of investors that New York, either any asset class in New York, so let's say multifamily, not just office specifically or hotel, they do come back. There is commerce happening. That city does not ever die. I think, first of all, to say you know uh, at this point is is really hard you know for anybody and, and and i've asked a lot of people what they think and and it it, it bounces uh, you know it depends on what time of day mm -hmm. you ask someone what i'm hearing is a consensus that new york is new york there is you know there's already people coming back to new york it is exceptional i think i've heard the same thing about san francisco although i think there's probably more work to be done mm -hmm. there are these permanent alternatives? Well, they've been on everyone's alternative list for a while. So you could probably make a case for that. And I, I do think that some of these markets that are, that are there around logistics and around tech, gosh, we've got a long road to go on that still in terms mm -hmm. of growth and in terms of what's happening there. And our supply chain is, is changing dramatically. So I think as our supply chain changes, and we don't know what it's going to look like, part of that's geopolitics, part mm -hmm. of that's you know how we manufacture things, part of that is what people are buying, but it is changing. And that means probably that there's some physical dislocation that's going to occur there and opportunities and risks and everything else that, that are associated with that. I do think that hotels are an interesting case for a couple of reasons. One is a year ago, everyone started raising capital like mad to buy distressed hotel properties, mm -hmm. to get discounts. That didn't happen. The hotels held on. And they held up to the businesses that owned those buildings held on for a variety of reasons. Some of it was help that they received. Some of it was just they were in better, they were in a better circumstance than they were the last They downturn. were prepared. Jim Rosolio from Host Hotels was on the podcast a couple of weeks ago and they were prepared. And they have yeah. found no distress and they have not given up stuff in distress. Absolutely but still they want to buy. So this was this was in February. People mm -hmm. knew that. People mm -hmm. knew that was happening, that they're just, okay, you can wait forever. It's probably not gonna happen. But now they really believe in hospitality. Um, and there is, I think, some real enthusiasm around 
that sector. Now, some of it may just be euphoria coming out of the fact that people can take their masks off from time to time. But I do think that it's interesting that hotels six months ago, we talked about in the same breath that we talked about retail as just an absolute disaster. Mm -hmm. That's not how people are talking about it now. Multifamily is at top, on top, I think, for a couple of reasons. The biggest one is we have a housing shortage in the United States. So they can look at the same demand supply numbers and come to the same conclusion all of us come to. I think affordable and not necessarily affordable, not just affordable with, with a government kicker, mm -hmm. but attainable. Uh, someone that I know talked yep. about attainable housing is going to become more and more important. And there's certainly a desire from my investor base because they are heavily steeped in ESG principles. It's very important, even more so than the United States. If you're a European investor, they care. A and will lot. they take a longer time horizon or a yield hit on attainable for ESG reasons when they invest in the US? I believe they will. Uh, at least some are saying that. Okay. Um, I think, you know, yes. And when you think about the time horizon for a lot of these investors, we tend to think of, uh, you know, seven years as appropriate in the United States and 10 as being a good long time period. I have a member that literally talks about their time horizon being a couple of hundred years. Now, mm -hmm. I don't know if they'll own that building for 200 years or not, but they are thinking that's how they want to operate. Mm -hmm. um, and they're not the only ones. There's this sense of, I'm in. I'm in for the long haul. If it means up front, I'm going to take, it's going to cost a little bit more, then I'll do that. One thing we're talking, we always talk about investment, but the equal question is what's their holdings? And so I bet their holdings in office is pretty high because that's what they were investing in. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's wait and see in terms of new investments because the reinvestments are going to be pretty high. You said office worse than hospitality because I think office has some reinvention that we don't yet understand more than any other sector. Right. But they're seeing that in their portfolios. So that's really interesting. Well, I mean, obviously they have long holds. So it's going to be hard for them to let go of significant parts of their portfolio. Mm -hmm. Certainly they're not growing it. And they may be looking for opportunistic kind of sales. And they, I'm, I'm talking about, you know, 200 people. So that, that <laughs> it could be a lot of different directions. Right. I may be generalizing to a certain extent, but you're right. Office has a question mark. Office, I, you know, anyone who says office is over, I think is premature. Yep. It has a question mark. I believe the big question mark is how passive will it be? So through its history, office has been a very passive investment mm -hmm. where, you know, you basically, you build the box, you lease it for 30 years at a time and, you know, have fun, see you in 30 years, unless something goes wrong. Now it's, and, and I'm exaggerating, but now we're moving more towards an operating business. So, you know, no matter what level of change, and there's a lot of great ideas about where it might go in terms of, you know, how to make sure that the office environment is attractive uh, and makes sense for the modern employer, it all costs money. And a lot of it does not have the same level of density. And mm -hmm. that's tricky because real estate, I believe, is all about monetizing density, mm -hmm. especially when you think commercial. When I was an industrious, I paid a whole lot more for the density that I had than I did when I had my own office. And I was really happy to pay for the optionality of that cost. Yeah. It was a whole different thing. So, and that it's a high operating model, whether it's done by a third party or whether it's done by the owner. Right. Right. And I, I think that's the question. A lot of people talk about what is this going to cost? Is this a different financial model than it was before? And until we understand what that is, it's going to have that question mark on it. Cool. How do they like to invest? Do they like to invest themselves? Do they like to invest through 
a commingled fund? Do they like to invest through a separate account? Do they like to invest through a REIT? What, what fits their models these days? And how is that changing? Well, probably the most accurate answer I could give you is yes. <laughs> it varies quite a bit. And it, and it varies by, I mean, you will see some things like a family, large family office is going to invest one way, uh, a large institutional uh, pension plan another. But even amongst those groups, you're going to see some variance because it depends on how how much intensity do you want in-house versus out-of-house. So buying a REIT stock, you know, makes absolute sense in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. uh, that is not a high control environment. Going alone and getting a building, well, that just creates increased load in terms of how many people you have and how many people you have on the ground. So I do think the fund model is still attractive. I don't, I don't think it's the only model. I think that generally speaking, people like the, you know, some sort of agreement perhaps where you're going deal after deal after deal, some sort of uh, partnership around that. There's a lot of different kinds of structures that people are creating. I think that no matter what the structure is though, well, this is what I hear all the time. You have to have a good partner. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to trust whoever you have on the ground, really trust them. And I see a strong level of that, whether it's someone that's their own person or it's someone that they engage with on the ground, it's a much higher level of partnership and trust than you usually see. So are we missing anything? Now, this is because you have the hat of your investors on before we get to the next question. Anything else from your investors that's different or changed coming out of COVID that we should think about? I have a big question mark around... When we talk about the office or we talk about people living far from the office and things like that and commuting from time to time, all those questions get compounded when you're dealing with international. Mm -hmm. And quite often, what I've been surprised at is the obstacles quite often are not just understanding the, the legal system or dealing with the distance and the time zones and everything else. The problem is, can I get on a plane and get there? How hard is that? How expensive is that? How often will I do that? So I think one of the things that we all have to work we all have to work on mm -hmm. if we believe in global trade which hmm. i do uh, <laughs> no, no surprise there right. i do believe that when frederick bastiat wrote when goods don't cross borders armies will and that was back in the 19th century i've long believed that i still do especially with what we see i think it 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 protects us to a certain extent from engaging in war because we are having to deal with each other I think it can engender trust. I do think that proximity is psychologically important. We somehow need to see each other. We need to, we need to smell each other, you know, just be in the same room. The question is how often? And we don't know what that ratio is, and we don't know how to make sure that that happens. And I do think that this whole ecosystem that we live with, this travel ecosystem, and obviously the supply chain and everything else, we haven't seen all the effects yet. We haven't seen it all play out and change our behaviors, which I think they will. So I think from an international standpoint, my concern is, all right, how do I make sure that we stay close and that we understand each other? Mm -hmm. And we'll see how it goes. And you're probably right that international travel, you're going to do half the number of trips for business than you used to before because you could do it on Zoom. We've learned that we can do it. Yeah. You're still going to go over there. They're still going to come over here. But I bet half as much at the end of the day. Yeah. And thank yeah, God for the environment because that'll make some good sense. Yeah, absolutely. So absolutely. this has been a really bizarre year. 
And it's not just COVID, which we think it is. So we this year we've had COVID. We've had diversity and racial equity finally gelled by G- George Floyd. We have environmental issues gelled by reality. And then we have the drive of technology driven by Zoom and everything that COVID made us do that we're able to do with Netflix and Zoom and online shopping. So those are four huge changes. And they're yeah. concurrent and they'll never end, even though the pandemic one, there will be things like that coming forward. So what do your members think about this? What do you think about this when we take these different topics and how they affect this business? I think that I'm fascinated by and personally heartened by what's happened in this country around racism and around trying to get ourselves to a point where we actually start solving some of these problems. You know, it's a long journey. All of these things are. Mm -hmm. I have been heartened by the amount of non-Americans who have reached out and engaged with me on that question because they see it in their countries too. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's different. Certainly it has a different history than we do, but it is the same issue. And we've been really, really fortunate within my organization. What I was looking for was a way for us to do something other than the statement from the white guy executive Mm-hmm. about how we, we care about other people. Those are all good statements and very important, but we, I wanted to go deeper and I wanted to do something or start something that could actually change. But I felt like we've had diversity programs for a long time and there had to be something better that we could do as we look at this problem. And I came across, uh, actually, uh, Ben Van Loon, who is our director of communications, had worked with a woman by the name of Shumika Pickett that is a consultant on these issues out of Chicago and was working with the government of Chicago on trying to improve where they were sitting. And after a few conversations with her, I realized this was, this was a dramatically different direction and one that could do something good. It could also be a disaster, but let's try. Let's, mm-hmm. let's, see, let's see what happens. And her emphasis is very much on reflection and introspection and looking at your own part that you play. And to move the question of racism and white supremacy and all these other very painful issues we have away from, oh, that's other people. Right. What's you my know, part the, in this stuff? It does require discomfort and it does require a certain level of pain. So part of the process that we are doing very small, you know, we're not doing with everybody, you know, right away. We're, you know, we're kind of doing workshop by workshop, just a few people at a time to be able to get people to kind of walk through some of these issues in a different way and to get themselves to a level of comfort where they're able to say, you know, you know what, what I did right there. I was taking things for granted. Mm-hmm. You know what? I never realized I'm white and I'm a white guy. And because I'm a white guy, certain things happen that I don't even think about. They just happen, mm-hmm. you know, that are great in some ways because I'm in charge. But to realize that that's not the case everywhere or that so many of the assumptions that are sitting out there, uh, Shamika describes it as a toxin that we breathe, that racism isn't a person. It's something that we all take in. And whether we're black or white or whatever, we're taking in this idea that the blacker you are, the less you are, and the whiter you are, the more that you are. But I think 
we were just very fortunate in that we found kind of a, a, a direction for us to go, which is more towards kind of a path towards reconciliation and a path towards mutual understanding. And when you say that, that's among your members or that's among your staff or it's among your leadership. And is it among the, you know, there's metrics to look at this stuff. Hey, we're not going to invest in a, in a manager in the United States that either doesn't have people of color on their yeah. leadership team. They don't have women on their leadership team. That's easy to figure. Yeah. This is a little tougher. Yeah. <laughs> but it's definitely gotta, a little tougher. But you got to do both. You got to do both. Uh, there's no question you got to do both. It doesn't work <laughs> unless you do both. <laughs> we're doing it with members, some of our leadership. And what we're also doing is we're bringing in more Black, uh, Indigenous, people of color into this discussion as well. There's not many folks that are- Not enough in our industry. Non-white, not enough in our industry, but to have them part of the conversation and to keep them in a kind of safe place as well. Mm -hmm. So they're not really putting their careers or their, their, their necks out in any way, mm -hmm. um, which is you know something to, to be cognizant of. But we are our next step and what we're trying to do is start thinking about what are the metrics? How do we start translating this into more of uh, perhaps an ESG framework? Mm -hmm. This idea that, yeah, as an investor, if you are not living by some of these things or not working towards these aspirational goals, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, and then that, I think there's great opportunity there. Um, mm -hmm. I also think it opens up something that we're particularly, it is egregious within the real estate industry. And that is that redlining happened. Yep. You know, it didn't really go away. Um, it's still there. Just look at the neighborhoods uh, with very few exceptions. We have some work to do. And I think the more that we're able to turn to ourselves and go, you know what? Yeah, I know this happened before I ever, before I was born, but I'm part of this. That's right. So it's I've, our I've, industry I've that caused yeah. some of, that, that was part of those behaviors. We built the sub, our industry built the suburbs. It created both sprawl. It created yeah. equity and wealth for largely white people that disenfranchised by not participating African-American people. Right. And that's all true. That's all true. And that's all stuff that we could solve. It's just, we've got to understand it. We've got to work through it. And I think we can. The easier topic is environmental. And I, boy, particularly European investors have to be so focused on that because of their mindset. And so how has that changed? And it has become highlighted every year over the past years, but how has that changed their investing in U.S. real estate? Well, to a certain extent, I feel like they've led us on that issue and their pressure has helped us kind of step up. And to a certain extent, I think the United States is doing very well on that, at least compared to where we were before. Uh, you know, I think we're doing well. We can now all look to Asia and go, well, come on, guys, you, you got to come up to the same level that we are now. I do think that when you are investing, even as a European pension plan in the United States, your first thought is not ESG necessarily. Mm -hmm. Maybe it should be, but your first thought is, are we going to get the yield that we need? What's the load on it in terms of taxes, in terms of what other issues there might be? Does this make sense? Oh, and by the way, is it ESG? And I've seen some people in the past, I don't know if this is true now, that have basically said, well, you know, what happens in Vegas? <laughs> States right. in Vegas kind of thing where, you know, yeah, we'd be much more assiduous about this if we were in Stuttgart, but here, maybe not so much. 
again, that may be past, you know, that may be something that's, that's more in the past than, than present, but there is a tendency to do that. Are they asking the questions on exit cap rates if they're going to hold something in Miami city that we all love, but in Miami in 15 years, they're going to do a longer hold period. Now moving into global warming issues, that's a whole other thing. Okay. And I, and, and I, no, I mean, and, and believe me, really important. I don't think there's enough conversation globally on it. I do think the Europeans are ahead of us on it in terms of starting to look at it as a risk and something that's more imminent. I mean, it's funny. People say, ah, 10 years, we're okay. I'm like, yeah, but you're investing for 20. Yeah, and someone's going to buy it in 10 years, and they're the ones who can invest for another 10 years, and now you're over the timeline of right. where that you're already the there. right thing to do. I mean, at some point, everyone understands, oh, no, there's no value here, and then everyone runs for the hills, and you've got a bank run. It will not happen gradually. I, I, I keep saying this to people, and not everyone is listening to me on this. It will not happen gradually. When Miami goes, it will go like that, because everyone will come to the same realization, and they'll go, I'm out of here. Right. Herd mentality. So will that, but, but that's not the conversation in your boardroom on an increasing basis among the foreign investors in U.S. real estate right now? No, it is. The European investors are talking about this. They are concerned about this. Whether or not they're investing according to their concerns, that, that's up to each individual investor. But you, do, you see more of it from Europe mm -hmm. and Canada than you see it from anywhere else. But the threats of global warming, you know, whether you're talking about Arizona, you're talking about Texas, you're talking about uh, the entire Gulf Coast, talking about Florida, some very real concerns. Fires not in California, where I see. Fires in California, yeah, fires in California. We never had more fires than we did last year, and who knows what's gonna happen this summer, it could be just as bad. Drought like we've never seen before. Phoenix is not designed to sustain that many people, just physically, yeah, water and so that, that's a real question. And then you've got heat. And you know that, that's the other thing that we tend to overlook is that that a lot of these climates are going to get to the point where, and not that far off, when there will be days where you can only spend an hour outside before you just expire mm -hmm. because you know a human body can't do it. There are a few places in the in the world that that happens now, in India and mm -hmm. in the Middle East, but that band is expanding. And so, kind of last question before we talk about Gunner. You and I, and this has come through in the conversation already, is we think of real estate as a responsible business. We see the impact that real estate has on our world, on our planet, on our citizens, on the places we live, work, and play. Real estate investors and real estate developers and real estate owners and managers can be global citizens. If we're not global citizens, they may hurt our business in some ways. We see rent control backlash. We see anti-development right. backlash, all this stuff. So- any thoughts from your perspective on how real estate can more successfully behave as global citizens? Well, there's, there's a couple of different ways. One, obviously, is for us to work together. The more intermeshed our projects are, the more that you have multiple countries in a, in a single building, mm -hmm. the better. Mm -hmm. I think it means that we've all had to come together at some level. Mm -hmm. I think ESG is a sign of better corporate citizenship. I think you know, the more we can be thinking about that, oh, it's just my building. That's all I care about. Well, no, everything around the building matters too. Right. And we have a responsibility to that and we can go there. I think there's one thing as global citizens that we need to do, and I very much would like to create more of, and, and as a fellow real estate podcaster, you know, this is certainly in your bailiwick mm -hmm. as well, is that non-real estate investors don't understand what we do. Whether they're in government or they're just people on the street or whatever, people don't understand what real estate actually does, how it works. 
that there are a lot of impressions about what real estate are based on a very small sample size that are not only wrong, mm-hmm. but if you respond according to that model in your head, damage is, is likely to occur. So if real estate were all rapacious landlords and slumlords, if it were dealmeisters only that all they care about is they get theirs and they don't pay anyone else, mm-hmm. people that don't behave themselves well, it's, our former president was was not a a fantastic advertisement for the industry for real estate. Yeah. I mean, people thought about that and they say, Oh, that's what real estate is. And, and it's not people don't realize that most people in Western countries own large commercial real estate. They have no idea that their pension plans mm-hmm. own real estate. They think that real estate is risky because the only time you hear about real estate is when things go wrong and it's not the real estate that's created the problem. Most of the time it's leverage. It's, getting out ahead of your skis. And leverage is only possible in real estate because it is such a consistent investment. So you wouldn't do 60% loan to value on a stock investment. That'd be insane. That'd be absolutely insane. It's far too risky. But we do it 50%, 60%, 70% on real estate, and it's considered conservative. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason because real estate kind of moves in slow motion. And you know sometimes it, it's a train wreck, but in slow motion. So we're able to do things around it. And all businesses are train wrecks from time to time. That if people understood that this is actually, I joke this way, I, I, not everyone gets, gets the joke that well, that, that real estate and institutional real estate in particular is a marvelous socialist hack of the capitalist system. Now, I don't want to get anyone angry that, you know, they're about socialism. I, I come from a long line of Swedes, so we just think it's a word. We don't think it's an insult. Mm-hmm. That what you're doing is you're taking the money, you're collecting all the money of the people. You are putting that money to work to create an environment where the people can continue to work and live and thrive. Mm. And then you're giving them savings for retirement. That's really what this is. This is a circle mm-hmm. where the community is coming together, throwing money in a hat and saying, let's build a city. What the hey? And let's not just depend on these five rich guys that they're going to want something in return for the city that they're building. No, let's let's put our own money. Whether you're a teacher or a fireman or you know right. you're someone working as a as a functionary somewhere or whatever, that's what pension money is. And pension money likes real estate because it's safe. It likes real estate because it's not as crazy as buying you know shares in Amazon, you know, which may do really well at times, but it could also go elsewhere. But we house Amazon. So we just keep going and we lease it to someone else if Amazon goes out of business. Not that Amazon's going to go out of business, but we are in the business of the city. We are an investor in the city. Therefore, I think if we understood, if we were able to explain that globally, and it's not just US, but globally for people to understand, that's what we actually do. And the people that have to work for pension plans, whether it's they're taking their money and putting it to work or they work inside pension plans, they have to behave themselves. You know? mm-hmm. So there's, there's, there's a, all the incentives are in the right place for, the, for these people to behave as leaders and to behave as citizens. It's interesting. Gunnar, you're one of the best storytellers I know. And <laughs> I think a big part of your job and the job of ULI and the job of all trade associations in our business is to tell that story, but tell that story in a way that the population understands it better to take away those negative myths or to balance out those negative myths of landlord and developer being bad to, hey, this is really what it is. So I have to tell the gunner story. You have to tell the gunner story. And Leading Voices tells the stories of people's different career paths in real estate 
we've had a couple of folks from kind of an association background, but and storytelling background. Tell us what got you into real estate. And you grew up in Alaska, always a crazy thing. So talk about that briefly and talk about how you found the uh, industry of real estate. So yes, I did grow up in Alaska. Actually, I'm I'm the same age as as former uh, vice presidential candidate that had a very Alaskan dialect. I think she was there longer or something. I'm not sure. In any case, yes. And one of the things that Alaska is interesting. It's a beautiful place, mm-hmm. it's gorgeous, and you know, incredible mountains and incredible forests and lakes and and uh, a lot of snow. It gets pretty cold. Things like that. But what it does not have is cities. And everything that I grew up with in Anchorage, which is the largest town in in Alaska, was pretty not great. Um, I mean, the buildings were not interesting. They weren't wonderful. Mm -hmm. There was no one walking on the streets, partially because it was cold, but partially because it was designed that way. You know, it it felt like one industrial park after another, and and that was about it. And I remember the first time I saw a city when I was 17, I kind of fell in love. It was something that was unlike anything I could have imagined or seen in movies or anything else like that. It was Chicago. And what I loved, certainly the buildings were great, great architecture here. It's beautiful. But what was happening on the street? It was the vitality, the pre-COVID world where there was lots of people and crowds where I would hear different languages, where there was just a kind of, I don't know, Jane Jacobs talked about it as being a dance or a ballet. It, it, right. it is. You know, that I fell in love with. So I think from that point forward, and I was also scared of it too. I mean, you know, small small town kid, middle of nowhere. Uh, there were aspects of the city that were just terrifying. Dark corners and things like that. And I had no idea what was going on. But I think I couldn't really let go. So you got out of Alaska. I got out of Alaska, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I studied actually uh, the theater. I did a few things on stage and uh, television and things like that. And in Chicago and realized I wasn't making any money and wanted to have a real life. So uh, I started working for GE and I worked for GE Capital in the 90s when they were you know, a big kind of mid-market lender at that point, although they expanded quite a bit from that. Mm-hmm. And that's when I really started. Well, actually before GE, I worked for an architecture firm, but in both cases, I became a bit of an observer or a fan, you know, I'm, I'm a real estate fanboy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I guess is how it's put, but I became an observer of how it works. And when I was working in architecture with an architect, I was always asked the question, why are most of our buildings so crappy? You design beautiful things. Why is there so many bad things around us as, as we go through that? And I never had an answer to that. And I thought, well, it must be all those bad architects that I'm not working for. And then I worked for GE Capital and I started realizing that it was structural, that it was the finance. It mm-hmm. was how the buildings were funded, both through the debt and through the equity in terms of what the return requirements were and the elevated perception of risk. So this idea that if it's different at all from the same thing that you've done a hundred times, there's a very high level of risk. Well, there is because you don't know it, but it also means you have the risk of creating something awful a hundred times. And that was eye-opening for me. And when I was working in that, and I did that for about 10 years doing marketing, I was really trying to understand how to explain to people uh, why working with a lender that was really tough and due diligence and downright mean was, was a good thing. <laughs> they were. They had a reputation for that. Oh, Retrade at the end of the day on every deal. We could say every this because they don't exist anymore. 
was the mantra. Oh. It was the corporate culture. Oh, gosh. Uh, and it was awful. So, you know, and I kept being told, well, do another ad that talks about how much we're into relationships. And, and it was like, well, yeah, I guess we are. We care. But that's not the way you should treat someone who's your friend or your partner. Long story short, I realized I spent a lot of time with customers that have been around for a long time or, or, or borrowers and asked them, why? Why do you invest with us? You complain about us every time we take you out to dinner. What, what is it that keeps you there? And it was interesting because they kept talking about how much they learned from each painful experience they went through. And I was like, why? He said, I rely on your due diligence. I know real estate, but you find stuff I can't find. Hmm. And at that point, I realized, okay, all right, fine. Our new campaign became, <laughs> I told all the salespeople, tell all the stories about how awful the credit committee is. I want you to, every story you've got, tell them, tell them how bad it is. Then tell them why that's good. And we talked about being passionate about the deal and you know trying to figure out how to make it right and everything else. We had our record year, not just because of that campaign, but... Mm -hmm. I learned a lot from that. And I, you know, I certainly learned from that point that there's a incredible power to not glossing over. And there's huge power to saying, this is how it stinks. It takes effort, I think, you know, mm -hmm. to not try to be nice about things or not try to please someone, but to say, all right, this is, this is it. This is where mm -hmm. it is. And, you know, to a certain extent, I'm telling you this because I respect you. I want to give you the truth, whatever it might be. And uh, it's not just a Boy Scout thing. It, it's hmm. pretty important. So a lesson for you. And then how did that turn into Nareem for you? Oh, goodness. Well, I worked for a couple other companies, Heller Financial for a while, mid-market before G bought them and kicked me out. And I ended up as a consultant, an innovation consultant, marketing consultant, which was great for years. I uh, was able to work with a lot of different companies and really kind of look at the problem of, okay, you're stuck. How do we move out of here? And just wonderful opportunity to think about those sorts of things and hopefully mm -hmm. give decent advice from time to time. But that I learned a lot. I learned a lot about change and how change works and how organizational change works. But at some point, I was asked by the the, the chair of Nareem, a former president had stepped out or accepted another position. And he asked me, well, what should we be looking for? You know, I had done some some work with them and everything else, and he wanted my opinion. And we talked for a while. And I put down the phone, and then I called him back, and I said, actually, I might want to do that. Mm -hmm. I have no idea. I've never done an association before, but I, I might want to do that because I think I can see what can be done there. And fortunately, with a supportive board and uh, just a great membership at Nareem, um, I was able to try some new things, do some things mm -hmm. that didn't work and, and learn from that. And 10 years later, I'm still running associations. So it, 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 I don't know if there's a school for associations or not, but mm -hmm. I did not attend it. Uh, you know, I, I, I came from School of Hard Knocks, I guess, but that's how I ended up where I am. Yeah. It's interesting. Your ability to convene conversation, it's not a huge room, it's a small room. The small room deep conversation, sitting with people who you were able to make a connection with because it's not a cocktail party and it's not too big. Yeah. And it's a topic of value that you really do want to drill down. And I think it helps everyone in the industry to be having those conversations with you. You talked about good to know foreign people, but here you're knowing your competitors and your friends and your colleagues. And I think all boats rise in the tide of knowledge here. Oh, yeah, no doubt. It's exhausting. You know, it, it's one of those things that you're like, you, you never quite know exactly how it's going to work out. I do think there's a level of delusion that, that is valuable in the, these kinds of roles. We kind of know that if we stand on stage and start talking, we'll be okay. 
Mm-hmm. And so that gives you a level of freedom that I see people prepare the heck out of anytime they're going to present. And I respect that and everything else. And, you know, people have to do what they have to do. The problem is that if you get too tightened up in terms of every detail, you're now thinking about, A, you're thinking about yourself. The last thing you want to be thinking about when you're in this kind of environment, you're thinking about yourself in a negative way. Like, I'm not good enough. I got I to gotta pull it together. And you are not giving yourself room to listen. Mm-hmm. And by listening, I don't just mean what people say. I mean, listen with your eyes. Yeah, watch the room. How are people reacting to things and, and doing things? Hmm. If you're making a presentation, what I'm thinking about when I make a presentation is, did you get that? Okay, are you a little off? All right, maybe I'll move over here. I literally will physically move from mm-hmm. side to side because what I'm trying to do is make sure I collect everyone into the idea. And then it's the idea. What's that one idea I'm trying to get you to? Right. You do an exceptional job at that. Okay. So let's next to last topic here. You do a podcast. And so the question for your podcast, tell our listeners how to get to the podcast. And I've listened to several episodes, really enjoyed them. But after you've done 200 of these, what do you hope to have accomplished? Why are you doing this thing? Why am I doing it? I think it's pretty straightforward. A, I love radio. (laughs) This is the closest thing I can get to it. No, I I think a big part of it is A, you know, something that's worth listening to and something that doesn't just say the same stuff over and over again. That's not just, you know, somehow having someone very important telling the usual kind of PR approved speech about what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And that that shows up everywhere. That shows up on stage, that shows up in print, it shows up everywhere. So for me, as with everything I try to do, I'm looking for what's different. What are you looking for as a speaker? What is it that is different from what everyone else is saying at Mm -hmm. this point? And and how do we work on that? I don't always get there, Mm -hmm. but that's, that's what I always want as much as possible to have. And that's a fun conversation and, and learning how to podcast. And I'm only a year in, so I've got, I hope a long way to go to learn more, but there's quirks to it that are really interesting and fun and learning how to interview people and thinking about my favorite interviewers that I've seen over the years Mm -hmm. and trying to learn from what they did and how they did it. It's just like, so, so from a personal basis, it's incredibly rewarding for me technically and how it works and, and a great way to have a conversation. Thirdly, I have conversations with members like this all the time, and it's not shared. So there's a a certain sense of, gee, these are really interesting people. They have a great point of view on things. We need to share that and make that part of the experience so that being part of AFIRE is not just going to a meeting, but it's also connecting with your colleagues and friends, even Mm -hmm. virtually all the time. So I, I feel like that's a powerful tool to get there. And again, we're learning and some are better than others and, and everything else, but that's the, that's the essence of, of where I think it's valuable. But the other value is mm-hmm. to give you a platform. So not everyone has a podcast show like you do or I do. Mm-hmm. It's to give a fire members a chance to express themselves right. in this circumstance. That I think is really valuable. Well, I'll, I'll give you a different challenge. So I'll go, here's my challenge. So okay. we're nearing episode 100. We're a couple of weeks away from episode 100. You're like 97 or something like that. <laughs> and I hope by episode 200 to have told the story of real estate through the guests we've had, the, the diverse story of real estate, not just story of office, not story of multifamily, not story of debt, not just the story of trade associations who are foreign investors or architects or city planners. I want to hear all those things. 
Yeah. And I want to see career paths for young people saying, well, I could do that. I could do that. Here's different ways to enter into this industry that I personally believe is impactful. And so if I can get a little of that impact stuff into each of these conversations, and then to, you know, to hear those stories from some people who've been phenomenally successful and phenomenal, that means like the billionaire guys, and we've had a few yeah. of them. Yeah. Or phenomenally successful. I run city planning in San Francisco and I've made a big difference. I'm at the top of that industry. So to me, those combined stories as a library is a mission that I have to tell. And you're doing it more precisely than I am. And you don't care about the career stories as much as you are. Let me give all these different perspectives into the world of real estate and these niches of how people invest or why they invest or who does this or who does valuations or who does technology or who looks environment. So between us, we're going to get that story told. I like that. I like that. I like being part of that. That's a much bigger and more exciting uh, kaleidoscope of stuff. That's wonderful. And I struggled the most with what I call curation, which is, okay, who should be a guest? What do we want to hear? Not who, in my case, not who wants to speak, but I need, I want to hear that voice. I want to add that voice to these conversations. Okay. Last question on leading voices is always, what is your advice to a young person getting into real estate business? Ah, uh, advice to a young person getting into real estate. One, come into real estate. <laughs> this has got to be one of the best times in the last century to get into real estate. More is going to happen in the next 10 years than has happened in the last 50 years. This is exciting. Understand, of course, and apologies to, to those of you that are specifically focused on the building, such as uh, architects. It's not about buildings. This, the buildings are an outcome of real estate, but the pursuit of real estate is really the pursuit of dense relationships. And it's a foundational element to the business. So as you are looking at what you're doing, oh, by the way, whatever discipline that you're in, whether it's design or it's finance or whatever it is, you need to study some other things. And you need to be somewhat omnivorous about what you study because what you're really trying to figure out is human beings. How do they work? Where do they go? Why? And if the best real estate people I've met whether they're the billionaires or they're the, the city planners, they understand people. They're sociologists and psychologists as much as they are experts in real estate. So there's a tendency for us to put people in, in different levels of importance. So these people are more important than those people. You know, these are the people I work with. So we're, we're going to be honest and open and forthright with each other. And then yeah, there's the suckers that lease our stuff. Mm -hmm. That's problematic. That creates problems. And we all do it. It's human. You know, there's a tendency for human beings to do that, but we have to fight against it. But uh, I think it's like you're creating relationships with the tenant. You're creating relationship with the money. You're creating relationship with the debt, with the legal, with the design, with the construction. All of these have to work together. It's a miracle that a building gets built. When you think about all the systems, whether it's physical or individual, people-based or relationship-based, it's pretty much a miracle. And it takes a lot of people working together, including, by the way, not just your tenants, but the people in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And oh, by the way, the people that run the city that you happen to be parked in. Oh, and by the way, all the pensioners that are putting their savings and have no idea that they've just invested it into your building. Wonderful advice. It's interesting. And so I'm going to summarize yours in a slightly different way, but okay. it, depending, everyone starts with a skill set. Everyone starts with a discipline. So coming from that discipline, you got to be really good at discipline, whether it's investing, yeah. architecting, planning, whatever it is. 
But then what's going to really make it work for you in the career is your ability to understand people, deal with yeah. people. And so you got to exercise both sides of that equation. No question. No really question. cool. Great advice. Hey, Gunnar, thank you so much for this conversation. All that I had hoped for and expected, and I'm thrilled to have it. So thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.